Hey friends, welcome to This Good Word. My name's Steve Weens, your host as always. And uh, I am so thrilled to let you all know that I have a new book coming out on Tuesday, April 7th. It's called Shining Like the Sun, Seven Mindful Practices for Rekindling Your Faith. Uh, the seven practices that I write about are attentiveness, ordinariness, simplicity, rhythm, conversation, delight, and restoration. And my essential thought is that for so many of us who have lost faith in religion, religious leaders, and we have transcended the belief system that we used to have, that we don't quite know how to reconstruct something else, my central thought in this is by practicing mindfulness, simply being where you are, that'll get us where we need to go. And so today what I want to do is I would like to read you uh, a couple of excerpts from a couple of different chapters. And just because I think it's fun, uh, I'm going to read first from a little excerpt from the simplicity chapter. Uh, this is practice number three. Simplicity. To touch life deeply in every moment, I practice simplicity giving unambiguous yeses and unapologetic noes in ways that leave margin and space. The internet has made it possible for someone in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and someone in Monument, Colorado, to talk using only their thumbs. Back in the day, if you wanted to get in touch with someone across state lines, you had to write a letter, or if you could afford long-distance rates, call them. Those were your options. Unless, of course, you were an especially creative seventh grade kid who lived 5,592 miles away from his best friends. In 1983, when I was entering seventh grade, my family moved from Oxnard, California to Waterloo, Belgium, and I missed my friends. Because my monthly allowance only covered the occasional can of Coke, Snickers bar, or ticket to the movies, an overseas long-distance phone call was just out of the question. I can distinctly remember envisioning how totally rad a video phone would be, though I was pretty sure flying cars would come first. Lacking such a device, I popped a 90-minute cassette tape into my boombox, and on both sides of the tape, I recorded myself telling stories and thoughts about my daily life in Belgium. They sell beer at McDonald's. I don't think people wear deodorant here. There's a weird little toilet next to the regular toilet that sprays water in your butt, and I'm afraid to use it. When the tape was full, I mailed it to one of my friends, though it took at least two weeks to get there. My friend got another blank tape and recorded stories and thoughts about his daily life back in Oxnard. Went to the beach today. Do you think Han Solo will get out of that frozen carbonite? Do you think Vanna White is kind of hot? Every month or so, as long as my friend remembered to do it, he usually did, I'd get a new tape. We didn't have internet, but we did have ingenuity. Those tapes would be priceless to me today if we had saved them. Of course we didn't. We were seventh grade boys. It's now 2019, and flying cars still don't exist, but I do have a battery-powered global broadcast system that fits in my pocket and gives me limitless video phone capabilities anywhere in the world. It also lets me stream limitless movies and TV shows late into the night, and it enables my 12-year-old son to send me texts when I'm at work. 
It lets me listen to the podcasts on limitless subjects, ranging from the history of gnomes to celebrities interviewing other celebrities about celebrity. It also lets me publicly share my limitless reactions to, well, everything. Jesus, take the wheel, as my friend Rebecca would say. What I'm trying to say is that everything feels too limitless. There are too many choices of what to watch on Netflix, too many opinions from too many people on too many current events, and honestly, too many topics to care deeply about. I can't process it all. I don't want to live off the grid, but I do want to be able to reclaim where my grid ends and where everybody else's grid begins. I need to touch my edges. Like the rest of us, Jesus got tired and cranky, but he seemed to have a clear sense of where he ended and where everybody else began. He seemed to know his own limits, and even with all the love and care he poured out, he seemed to prioritize getting what he needed. One night after a long day surrounded by people and their needs, Jesus climbed, climbed into a boat and then miraculously calmed a storm. When I try to imagine this story, I see Jesus stumbling slowly behind the disciples as they walk toward the boat, utterly exhausted from a long day with too many people and too many needs. Jesus is so tired, they have to stand alongside him so he doesn't fall into the water as he climbs into the boat. Once on board, he goes down below and collapses onto the nearest seat cushion, falling asleep within seconds. Suddenly, the disciples are shaking him awake, mercilessly battered by the wind. The boat is beginning to splinter apart as a nasty storm rages. Instead of wrapping him in a life preserver, they scream at Jesus, do something. Don't you care that we're about to die? When he realizes how severe the problem is, Jesus talks to the wind and to the waves. Peace, he says, be still. The boat continues to rock back and forth for a minute or two, and the sails are in tatters, but the lake has become an unbroken expanse of utter calm. Jesus interrupts the unexpected tranquility with a question that may be over the top, but everybody's cranky when they first wake up. Why were you guys so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Then he goes back to sleep. Before assessing the damage to the boat, two, two of the disciples light cigarettes and wonder out loud just who in the hell this guy is. Even if you doubt how someone who is neither part of the X-Men nor one of the Avengers can change the weather, you have to admire a guy who can sleep through a storm. Why was he able to tune out the storm when everybody else was so terrorized by it? Why was he able to get the rest he needed when the heavens themselves seemed to be conspiring to keep him awake? Practicing simplicity is like being able to sleep through a storm. You're able to get what you need, live within your limits, and make time for what's really important in the middle of the storm of overstimulation, busyness, and overcommitment that's sweeping everybody else overboard. Practicing simplicity doesn't mean you have to forego digital music or buy a five-pack of blank cassette tapes. It doesn't mean you have to delete your Facebook account after an all-night binge of scrolling while finishing off that pound of brownies one forkful at a time. It doesn't mean getting nostalgic about those trips to family video. What it does involve is learning to touch life deeply in every moment by learning to give unambiguous yeses and unapologetic noes in ways that leave margin and space. Maybe that sounds like a fairy tale. Maybe you feel trapped by a thousand things demanding your yes. Maybe no is a four-letter word in your particular family, workplace, or group of friends. 
Maybe margin and space feel like luxuries you can't afford. Maybe you're afraid the storm will keep you awake no matter how hard you try to get some sleep. Don't focus on the storm. Go down below where it's quiet. Beyond the thousand demands of your life lies a question, which you will hear when it gets quiet enough. But when you finally hear it, don't answer too quickly. Here's the question. What are you willing to say no to so that you can create space to say yes to what you really want? Well, there it is, friends, excerpt number one. And I write about simplicity not because I have that figured out, but because I it, it's something I really am trying to practice more and more. I'm someone that tends to feel like I need the adrenaline of a lot of things going. I've told people that I'm best when I have several different irons in the fire, vocationally, so to speak. And I think that is partially true. I think I do thrive on doing uh, several different projects. I think I get creative when I can put my mind to solving new problems and not just the same same ones every, you know, every day or every week. But I also think there's something lurking underneath that need for adrenaline that needs some addressing. I think the reality is in my own life, I, I don't I don't think I have a real good grasp on the unapologetic no. You know, have you ever been invited to do something? Maybe it's just a social thing. But the truth is that your calendar is just too full. Um, can you give an unapologetic but kind no to that invitation without feeling like you have to overcare for that other person? Or maybe it's simply something that you feel like you, like maybe uh, it's time to get your life in shape, to get back to working out or to eating right. And maybe you and your partner, you and your roommate decide to do something all together and you just start stacking up the new commitments. You know, you're going to eat better. You're going to work out five times a week. You're going to get lots of sleep. And there's a little voice inside your set, inside your head that says, you know, maybe we should try like one of these <laughs> and then build on it. You know, like maybe we shouldn't try to do all of this at the same time. Um, but you try anyway, and instead of saying yes to one thing and maybe no to four things, you say yes to all five things, and then you end up crashing and burning. Or even as it relates to like spirituality and sort of what you believe, have you ever thought about simplicity as it relates to what you believe? Um, there's a simplicity, I think, to um, this story that I read and that I wrote about Jesus calming the storm. And I think we get a little lost in, you know, the what seems like kind of a crazy miracle, like how could he possibly have actually changed the weather? Um, but the, I think one of, the, one of the things that I notice about that story that is really compelling to me is that Jesus was doing lots and lots of what we might call ministry. Maybe he was healing people. Maybe he was listening to people and there was lots of people crowding around him. Uh, but then there came a moment where he was done 
And I can't believe, or I don't believe that he was done because everybody, like there was no one left. I think there was probably a constant stream of people. And there came a time where he got to be so exhausted because he was a human being that he simply had to leave. And so I picture him disappointing people and leaving them even before they could get to him. Maybe they'd been waiting all day and he was out of gas. And so he had to leave. He had to get in a boat and cross that lake and get some sleep because he was human and he was limited and he just couldn't do everything. That to me feels like the miracle, right? You know, like when you, when you think about your own life and your own journey, like, um, do I have the courage to walk away from something so that I can get sleep so that I can get, I mean, honestly, like that feels like the miracle to me. So that's, that's why I write about simplicity. And, um, and that's why I think it's really an important, an important, um, practice to continually go, um, go toward and move toward. So in the chapter, I get really practical and I think tangible how, about how it is that we can learn to give more unambiguous yeses and unapologetic noes. And folks, um, before I read the next excerpt from the chapter on conversation, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to join me and help spreading the word. So here's the deal. Uh, I am I am putting together a launch team of a bunch of people who follow my work and who appreciate what I'm putting down. Uh, if you join my launch team, uh, here's what you get. The first 50 people get will get a, a final printed copy mailed to them a couple weeks before it actually releases. So you get it sometime in March. That's fun. I'm also going to create a private Facebook page where we're going to essentially do um, three different sessions of uh, chapter chats. And I'm going to do some readings, but also have some Q&A. It's going to be kind of like a book club about Shining Like the Sun that we'll do uh, on three different nights in March leading up to the launch. It'll be a way for you to read the book early. Even if you're not one of the first 50 people, uh, we'll get everyone a PDF of the, of the final galleys. And so you'll be able to read the book well in advance of some of these chapter chats. And then um, we're going to do some giveaways, some books that I love. We're going to bundle them, two or three of them, and uh, do some giveaways. We're going to do some Amazon gift cards because, you know, this is time to celebrate, you guys. I have a new book coming out, and it is time to spread the word, but also to celebrate it. So uh, we're going to have lots of fun. So if you would like to be on the launch team, please just go to steveweens.com slash show notes or just click in the uh, the the little blurb on this particular episode in iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening. And you can find the the link that just says, join the launch team. And um, I'm what I'm asking for is I'm asking for you to pre-order the book. I'm asking for you to write a review and then just do some basic sharing on social media. So um, just go to stevings.com slash show notes and you will... Um, get a chance to apply to be on the launch team. Thanks, you guys. Okay, now the next um, the next little excerpt is from uh, practice number five, conversation. And I'm especially excited about this chapter because, you know, we live in a world right now that is so polarized that, that feels like it's getting worse and worse at having conversation. 
And so this chapter, I think, is particularly uh, meaningful to me right now, and I hope it is particularly meaningful in the world, um, because I think there's a way that we can learn to give dignity to people even when we disagree. So here it is from Practice 5, Conversation. To be present with those I consider other, I practice conversation, learning to ask and answer questions that continually expand how I see and understand the world. If you want to reveal how insufferably self-righteous you can be, and why wouldn't you, all you need to do is try to have a conversation about God with someone from your own religious tradition with whom you disagree. Progressive or conservative, or somewhere in between, we're all the same. We love being right, and we hate when that rightness is threatened. A few years ago, I had a fight on Facebook with an old friend named Tom. I had posted something to which Tom took offense, implying I would painted a group of people with brushstrokes a little too broadly. I would recently promised myself to be a little less polite on Facebook, so I fired back a comment designed to win instead of listen. After a few heated exchanges, our mutual friend Steve jumped into the conversation and suggested that the three of us meet face-to-face to understand each other better. I had zero interest in that meeting, so I closed my laptop and moved on. Later, I changed my mind. Tom and I met for lunch at one of those massive restaurants that serve waffle fries and 36-ounce beers. When Tom told me about his parents and his childhood and also about the challenges he'd faced while trying to raise his own family, my shoulders dropped. It's one thing to argue with a one-dimensional avatar on social media. It's another thing to listen to a human being with a story that includes pain, disappointment, and hope. I left that lunch feeling hopeful. I don't have to agree with everything Tom believes, or anything at all for that matter, to honor his story and to simply listen. I don't have to defend my rightness in order to hold a deep conviction. And anyway, being an asshole and being polite are not the only two options for how to have conversations. In Conjections of a Guilty Bystander, Thomas Merton writes about the universal human desire to possess the truth, in quotes. But none of us, Merton suggests, is actually that virtuous. We don't really want the truth. We really just want to be, quote, in the right. And here's the quote from Merton, and I quote, What we seek is not the pure truth, but the partial truth that justifies our prejudices, our limitations, our selfishness. This is not the truth. It is only an argument strong enough to prove us right. And usually our desire to be right is correlative to our conviction that somebody else, perhaps everybody else, is wrong. Why do we want to prove them wrong? Because we need them to be wrong. For if they are wrong and we are right, then our untruth becomes truth. Our selfishness becomes justice and virtue. Our cruelty and lust cannot be fairly condemned. We can rest secure in the fiction that we have determined to embrace as truth. End quote. If you only search for ways to strengthen an argument for what you already believe, your faith will burn down to embers and eventually die out, even if you think it's burning brightly. But if you have the courage to keep searching for better questions that expand the way you believe in God, your faith will spark to new life over and over again. How do we learn to understand each other and be understood? How do we learn to ask questions that continually expand how we see the world? How do we resist the temptation to caricature people with whom we disagree or whose decisions 
we don't understand. In yogic thought, there are 10 jewels designed to help people live well. The first five jewels, called the yamas, come from a Sanskrit word meaning restraint, nonviolence, truthfulness, non-stealing, non-excess, and non-possessiveness. The last five jewels, called the niyamas, are observances, purity, contentment, self-discipline, self-study, and surrender. Nonviolence is the first jewel because it's the foundation on which all the other jewels rest. Without nonviolence, the rest are impossible to practice. Nonviolence simply means to do no harm. Jesus said it this way, love your enemies and pray for those who curse you. Sometimes it's obvious when we're doing harm to ourselves or others, but most of the time it's hard to tell. My friend Deva is a 42-year-old married mother of two high school kids who lives in North Minneapolis, and who also happened to feel an irresistible invitation, maybe even a calling, to attend a three-year program at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. When she started talking to family and friends about the possibility, she quickly found out that even in 2019, wives and mothers aren't supposed to do stuff like that. Some expressed shock that she would even consider it. How would she maintain her marriage and her relationship with her children, even while living so far away? Weren't other seminary options closer to home? Isn't that particular seminary really different? Every time I talked to her about it, she had a new story about someone else telling her she shouldn't go without even listening to the reasons why she maybe felt that she should. She told me how hard it was to trust her deep, inner sense of calling in light of criticism from people who were close to her. Those people had done harm to Deva, though not intentionally. And it wasn't necessarily harmful to question whether or not she should go, but it was harmful to weigh in without taking the time to really listen. And maybe Deva did harm to herself by inviting certain people to weigh in on such a tender and important process. Why is it that so many conversations about faith involve foolish questions designed to trap us into giving foolish answers? Is it possible to change the tone of these conversations so that they're less defensive and more expansive? Why do we mistrust any experience of the divine that feels unfamiliar to our own experience? What new experiences of God do we miss even when we insist on keeping our old ones on repeat? Practice learning to ask better questions. Do we really shine like the sun when we'd rather leave someone in the shadows? If we want to have better conversations that lead to expanding how we see and understand the world, we need to learn to ask questions, one that invite people to expand rather than defend their territories. Jesus was particularly good at asking expansive questions and inviting people to expand their territories. The questions weren't always comfortable, and he wasn't always polite. He also knew how to refuse to answer dead-end questions by dangling different questions, ones that would lead people to somewhere new hoping they'd bite. Not everyone did. The parable of the Good Samaritan is, is a good example of the kinds of questions Jesus asked and also the kinds of questions he refused to answer. First of all, parables aren't cute stories. They're purposely confusing and hard to follow. They're tricky, but they're not traps. They're designed with layers of meaning, which allow you to expand as far as you're capable of expanding. Parables are like those wooden Russian matryoshka dolls of decreasing sides, which are placed one inside of the other. When you open one of them, you find another one inside of it. 
Parables contain juxtaposition and paradox, which give listeners a choice. Will they keep opening up the next doll to find out what is there, or will they stop? Parables are essentially great questions, constructed with characters and a plot, where you get to choose the ending based on how far you want to take it. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan after a religious leader asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus responded by asking him what the law says. The religious leader answered quickly and correctly, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Correct answer, Jesus said. Do that and you'll live. But the religious leader wasn't satisfied. He pressed Jesus with what on the surface might have sounded like a good question. But who is my neighbor? Now that is a tricky question. Is it sincere or is it designed to reinforce his already established territory? Instead of answering that tricky question, Jesus told a parable to help the religious leader see what kind of question he'd just asked. Here's the gist of the parable. A man was left for dead by the side of the road after being robbed. A priest and a Levite passed by the man without helping him, but a Samaritan stopped to bandage the man's wounds and then took him to an inn, where he left money for the man's room and board and doctor's bills, promising to come back in a few days. When Jesus finished telling the story, he asked the religious leader a question with more layers than I can count. Which of the three men was a neighbor to the man who was robbed? The one who showed mercy, the religious leader answered. How many layers did he understand? Did he see what Jesus was trying to show him? Do we? We think the priest and the Levite are insufferable hypocrites for refusing to help the guy who was left for dead, but you could also argue that they were loving God and loving people by remaining ritually pure so that they could offer sacrifices at the temple later that day. If priests and Levites abandoned ritual purity laws, the whole temple system would fall apart. You could argue that they were correct in doing what they did. They were just following the laws of their religious tribe. It's a little too moralistic to infer that Jesus' main point was that the priest and Levite should have done anything differently. There's something deeper going on. Most religious leaders in the time of Jesus saw Samaritans the way Draco Malfoy saw mudbloods in the Harry Potter books, an offensive term for wizards who have non-wizard parents. When Jesus asked the religious leader which of the three men was a neighbor to the man who was robbed, he was inviting the religious leader to see the Samaritan man in the same class of human being as the priest and the Levite, which expanded the conversation in an extremely unpredictable direction. If priests and Levites can love God and neighbor by showing mercy to temple worshipers, by offering sacrifices, Samaritans can love God and neighbor by tending to people who are left for dead by the side of the road. What must I do to inherit eternal life is a fair question, but a question like that usually leads to either or answers which entrench fear. In contrast, to whom can you show mercy is a question that can take the conversation in many unpredictable directions, expanding the way we see and understand the world. The parable of the Good Samaritan isn't about doing nice things for strangers. It's about expanding an either-or category to both and. Asking a better question isn't a guarantee that the other person will participate, but it might lead to a surprising interaction 
where both parties expand their understanding of the world. In short, it could open up a conversation that might help you rekindle your faith, which isn't a bad way to spend a day. Practice. Learning to request a different question. Sometimes we'll be on the receiving end of a dead-end question, and unless we're content with freezing up, setting our own trap, or running away, we'll need to find a different way to respond. We won't always become aware soon enough, but when we do, we can pause long enough to make a mindful choice about how we want to request a different question. During my favorite class in college, my senior seminar course in sociology, I read a book that introduced me to a new way to respond to a dead-end question. On the first day of class, our professor, who looked a lot like a young Sam Shepard, told us that our entire grade would be based on our ability to engage in thoughtful conversation and discussion in class based on the assigned reading. There would be no papers and no tests. One of the books we read was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig, which introduced me to a Japanese word, mu, which literally means no thing. Mu is a response equal to, but different from, yes and no capable of refusing dualistic categories, expanding one's understanding in an unpredictable direction. Mu is a response you might give to a question that only has room for an either-or answer when you want the conversation to expand beyond those limitations. Mu allows you to say that giving a yes or no answer to a particular question would be to dishonor the subject matter. Mu was reincarnated for me when recently I listened to a podcast featuring Padre Gotuma, a gentle, brilliant writer, poet, and mystic from Ireland. Padre is also gay, and he grew up in the kind of Christianity where being gay went far beyond the limits of acceptability. During this interview, Padre defined Mu as a request to unask a question that was designed to categorize as an either-or, something that shouldn't be categorized that way. A gay poet and spiritual teacher from Ireland probably has many opportunities each day to say moo. Unask the question, Padraig explained, because there is a better question to be asked. Asking a wiser question might unfold us into asking even more wiser questions, whereas certain kinds of questions just entrench fear. Questions that entrench fear don't have to be dead ends. Mu allows you to at least request that the conversation expand beyond fear and into unpredictable directions. Your body usually knows first when you're being asked a dead-end question. You might feel uneasy in your gut or in your shoulders, as if you're being trapped. Instead of answering the dead-end question, you can pause and find a way to request a different question by asking one of the following questions. Why do you ask? Before I answer... May I ask you a few questions? Or, I'm not sure my answer to that question is going to help, so I'd rather not answer it. Can you ask that question in a different way? Well, that's the excerpt on conversation. And as I was reading it, I felt myself getting more and more excited about the possibility that uh, different dialogue, better dialogue, better discourse can actually happen in the world. And that's what we need to work on. It's going to take work. I think it'll take intentionality to 
realize when you're being trapped in a dead end question and learning to ask for a different question. I love that moo concept, uh, how to request that a different question be answered, which is essentially saying, you know, we can have that conversation, but I think it's only going to entrench us even further in the categories that we already find ourselves in. So I wonder if there's a better question that can expand um, both of our understanding so that we can both keep learning and keep growing. Uh, friends, I was excited to share those readings with you. Thanks so much for listening. I'm honored by that. And I would just repeat the request. Uh, again, I'm looking for people to help spread the word. So if you would like to join my launch team, uh, just a few more days, March 1st is the deadline. So you need to get on it ASAP uh, by going to either just the, uh, the little blurb uh, on the podcast uh, feed that you're listening to uh, the description, the episode description has the link in it. Just click on join my launch team. It'll take you to the page where you can apply. And again, the first 50 people will get uh, a copy of my book mailed to them. Everyone will get a PDF of the book um, that you can have access to and read it. We'll do uh, chapter chats and a book club during the weeks of March on the book. You can have you know plenty of time to read it and have some chances to interact back and forth with me about it. And, um, and then we'll have lots of, we'll have a few giveaways of different books that I'm enjoying right now and Amazon gift cards and all that good stuff. So folks, thank you so much. Uh, and if you're not interested in being on the launch team, pre-order the book, uh, wherever it is that you like books, that is a great way to encourage um, the sales of this book. So the more pre-orders <clears throat> that happen on Amazon, for example, the more they will start um, promoting it on their own pages. So it really, really helps. So do a brother a favor and pre-order the book. You can find the link on the show notes or just type in Shining Like the Sun by Steve Weens and uh, any of the places where you buy books and you will uh, be giving me a great kindness. Okay, friends, thank you so much uh, for engaging with me on this. This is an exciting time of my life, and uh, I hope you can get this book and read it and be helped by it. Grace and peace. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. <laughs>